This podcast contains explicit language. Reason number one, Maury Ball. As Maury Wills took a huge lead off first base, even the Cardinals fans were cheering for him. Go, go, go. It was the same chant Wills always heard back home at Dodger Stadium. In 1962, whenever Wills got on first base, baseball became high drama. All year long, fans had wondered whether the little shortstop could break the modern record of 96 stolen bases in a season held by Ty Cobb. Here in St. Louis, Wills had tied the record back in the first inning. Now the Dodgers were losing 11-2, and the only drama left was whether Wills would steal right here, right now, for the record breaker. The Cardinals were determined not to let him. Their veteran pitcher, Larry Jackson, made 16 pickoff throws to first base, or at least that's how Wills would later remember it. So instead of trying a traditional steal, Wills went for that bit of trickery known as the delayed steal, waiting until the catcher caught the pitch before surprising everyone and dashing for second. It was a fitting play for the record breaker, relying as it did on Wills' brains more than his speed. Wills dove head first into second as a cloud of dust went flying, and the catcher's throw bounced into center field. Maury Wills was baseball's new stolen base king. Nobody had expected Maury Wills to even make it to the big leagues, not even Wills himself. In 1958, he was playing his seventh season in the minors, 25 years old and going nowhere. The Dodgers had no plans for him, and were constantly trying to trade him. In fact, they'd already done so once. But when the Detroit Tigers got a look at him, they didn't want him either, so they returned him to the Dodgers and asked for a refund. His build was too scrawny, everyone said. His defense was just okay. And as a right-handed hitter, he was tormented whenever a right-handed pitcher threw him a curveball. Before the pitch broke over the plate, it always looked like it was going to hit him, and Maury couldn't stop himself from flinching. The problem was finally solved in 1958 by his AAA manager, Bobby Bragan. Back in 1947, Reagan had been one of the racists on the Dodgers who signed a petition to keep Jackie Robinson off the team. In the decades since, he had come to a personal reckoning, changed his ways, and expressed genuine remorse for his meanness toward Robinson. He was a walking poster boy for the notion that people can change for the better. Now Bobby Reagan spent his days teaching the fundamentals of baseball to Dodger farmhands, including young African Americans like Maury Wills. He noticed that Wills kept flinching at curves thrown by righties, and he offered a suggestion. Have you ever thought of switch hitting? If Wills batted left-handed against right-handed pitchers, he would never again have to face a curveball that came from so far behind his head it looked like it was going to hit him. Working hard every day with Bragan, Wills became a capable switch hitter shockingly quickly. A year later, he was not only in the major leagues, but he was the starting shortstop on the World Series champions. Maury Wills was a sensitive, fragile man who would have serious self-esteem issues his whole life. He grew up in a tough public housing project in Washington, D.C. He and his 12 siblings slept four kids to a bed, but Maury was a bedwetter, so his brothers kicked him out of the bed and taunted him with the nickname P-Boy. From then on, he slept alone, finding comfort on the Sandlot baseball fields, where he would fashion a makeshift fielder's glove out of a paper bag, use it until it fell apart, and then make a new one. But even after he grew up and became a baseball star, Maury continued taking every slight to heart, being emotionally crushed by each insult. And he cried, 
a lot. Regardless of what Tom Hanks might say, there certainly is crying in baseball, and Maury Wills was living proof. He would cry when he was going through a slump. When racists hurled insults at him, he would show a brave face in the moment, then go off somewhere by himself to cry. Once, he even burst into tears on the field when an umpire made a bad call against him. Wills got past his problems by being a ferocious competitor on the field. To put it bluntly, Maury Wills was a dirty player. He encouraged his fellow infielders to trip opposing runners as they rounded the bases. He would intentionally throw at the heads of runners who were bearing down on him to break up a double play, hurting them before they could hurt him. One Giants player had to be rushed to the hospital after Wills hit him in the forehead with a throw at close range. Another time, Wills was on first base and decided he didn't like the way the opposing first baseman, Joe Torrey, was fielding pickoff throws. Between innings, Wills went into the clubhouse to put on a pair of spikes that he'd specially sharpened to cut people's legs with. The next time he got on base, he slashed Torrey's calf open and blood spurted all over the infield. It wasn't anything personal, he would later say. It's the way Cobb played. As his teammate Lou Johnson put it, Maury would piss off God to win. In the 1950s, the stolen base had fallen out of favor in baseball. It was a one-run strategy, and a risky one at that. Teams discovered that they could score much more efficiently by simply sitting around and waiting for someone to hit a three-run homer. In the 14 years before Maury Wills debuted, nobody in the big leagues stole more than 40 bases. Wills stole 50 in his first season, the most in the National League since 1923. He pilfered bases at such a high success rate that it became the focal point of the Dodgers' offense. His manager, Walter Alston, stopped bothering with the steal sign. He just told Maury to go whenever he wanted. With the opening of Dodger Stadium in 1962, Wills became a phenomenon. The new park had vast expanses of foul territory and its heavy marine air suppressed the distance of batted balls, making it hard to score runs, and making one-run strategies like the stolen base relevant again. Wills stole every chance he got, urged on by the huge crowds chanting, Go! 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 He stole second base 86 times in 97 attempts. He was even better stealing third, going 16 for 17. He helped win the All-Star game with his daring base running, baiting the left fielder into throwing behind him as he rounded second base, and when the throw came, easily scooting to third. Maury Wills was a gigantic star and a great draw because he was a terrific base stealer, and the uh, major leagues had not seen anyone like him since Ty Cobb. That's Wills' teammate, Wes Parker. So Maury kind of reinstated the running game and the, and the stolen base, base, which is very exciting. Uh, to see in the game of baseball. More recently, we've had Ricky Henderson, Luke Brock, and some of the others who are, are terrific base stealers. But Maury got that all going again, and he was also a very smart player, very intellectual, a steadied where hitters were most likely to hit the ball, and he would position himself at shortstop accordingly and accurately. And he was also a very good bunter, Maury was, and he would, he would get terrific leads, very good leads. Sometimes pitchers would throw over eight, nine times to try and pick him off. And on the tenth try, they would pitch the plate and Maury would go. So after nine straight pickoff attempts, on the tenth pitch, he would go. And it was, it's very hard to do. It's, 
very, very hard to do when you're diving back into first base that many times to, to suddenly take off for a second because your body takes a beating. And in fact, by the end of every season, Maury's legs were battered and bruised and black and blue. And for that reason, he would slide head first to try to take the punishment on his belly rather than on his legs. If you've been a baseball fan for a while, you've probably heard the old trope about how the Dodgers scored runs in the 60s. It goes something like this. LA's pitching was so great that they would win many games one to nothing. Often they would score that run without a hit. Maury Wills would walk, then steal second base, move to third on a bunt or another steal, and score on a ground out. This scenario has been put forth as evidence of Wills being a one-man offense and proof that he belongs in the Hall of Fame. It's been retold in books, game broadcasts, TV documentaries. It's become a truism of baseball history. There's only one problem. It's fiction. It's a bedtime story, like Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny, and just about as real. In fact, there were only five games in Maury Wills' career where he scored the only run in a one to nothing Dodgers victory, and four of those five didn't even involve a stolen base. The only one that did came in 1965, when Wills had a bunt hit, stole second, went to third on an error, and scored on a single as the Dodgers beat St. Louis one to nothing. That game happened a week before the end of the season, in the heat of a ferocious pennant race, so it was a memorable game. So memorable, apparently, that in the memories of those who witnessed it, it's been magnified and multiplied into dozens of imaginary games, to the point that it became an entire offensive philosophy, albeit a fictional one. The truth is, the popular version of Mori Ball won the Dodgers exactly one game in a 12-year period, and even in that one game, it took two base hits to score Mori Wills. Which is not to say that Maury Wills wasn't vital to the Dodgers' offense. Along with a few other players, like Luis Aparicio and Lou Brock, Wills really did revolutionize the sport, bringing the element of speed back to the forefront. And the Los Angeles offense, such as it was, really did revolve around him. Maury Wills helped change the game of baseball, and in so doing, he became an icon. And he's one of nine reasons why the team he played for, the LA Dodgers of the 1960s, was possibly the most important and influential franchise in the history of the game. That's coming up on Fade Away. Hi everybody and a very pleasant Sunday to you, wherever you may be. Strike three the umpire But I have to go back and sit down I mean, Don. <laughs> Hello, Greg. How are you, son? Just great. Yeah. Guess what? Mantle faces Colfax in the second inning and is called out on strike. Mickey obviously is chagrined. It's four strikeouts in a row for Sandy. Every day when the when you know I wake up and you know and I look around me and I know that I'm free, I think that that's a dream. That's a dream that I had, and that's why I came to this country. Got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to Fade Away, the baseball history podcast. I'm your host, Eric Enders. Today's episode, 
Nine Reasons in which we explore the nine distinct ways in which the Los Angeles Dodgers of the 1960s changed baseball forever. Reason number two, the stadiums. Come to Los Angeles. The sun shines bright, the beaches are wide and inviting, and the orange grove stretches far as the eye can see. In 1958, when the Brooklyn Dodgers and New York Giants became the first major league teams to move to California, team owner Walter O'Malley's first order of business was finding a temporary ballpark for the Dodgers while his dream stadium was being constructed in Chavez Ravine. flirted with the idea of using Wrigley Field, not the one in Chicago, but its cousin in Los Angeles, where the AAA LA Angels played. But he felt that park was too small. He considered the Rose Bowl, where Dodger legend Jackie Robinson had once led the nation in rushing for UCLA, but it wasn't centrally located enough. Finally, he picked the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, a massive concrete structure that had been built in 1923 for USC football and expanded for the 1932 Olympics. One Dodger pitcher called it the Grand Canyon with seats. The playing field, a giant oval, was exactly the wrong shape for baseball, but O'Malley didn't care. He was more interested in the Coliseum's 93,000 seating capacity. The Dodgers squeezed a baseball field into the space by putting home plate at one end of the oval and situating the left field fence a ludicrously short 251 feet from home plate. This pleased the team's right-handed hitters, but to keep home runs from coming too cheaply, the team erected a 40-foot-tall chicken wire screen in left field. It was an inviting target, so inviting that it changed the way the players approached the game. The right field fence was as far away as the left field fence was close, so lefty batters like Wally Moon had to learn to hit pop-ups the other way, where they would plop over the chicken wire for home runs. The bizarre stadium made a mockery of the game, but Los Angeles fans loved it. When the Dodgers played in the 1959 World Series, more than 92,000 people packed in for each of the three games at the Coliseum. Those are still three of the five highest attended games in baseball history. The other two were also played at the Coliseum. While the Dodgers were trying to hit baseballs out of a football stadium, Walter O'Malley was building his baseball palace a mile north of downtown, in a hilly wooded area called Chavez Ravine, often mispronounced Chavez Ravine by white folks. Local legend holds that a vibrant community of Mexican-Americans was forcefully evicted to clear the way for Dodger Stadium, but that's not what actually happened. The destruction of Chavez Ravine's Mexican-American village actually began long before Walter O'Malley ever dreamed of moving his team to Los Angeles. Some of the 1,800 people living there were descendants of settlers who'd been deeded the land by the King of Spain in 1781. The rest had moved in from other areas of L.A., where rampant housing discrimination limited their options. But in 1949, the city accepted federal funds to build a low-income housing project in Chavez Ravine, and two years later, the city of Los Angeles began buying up parcels from the individual landowners, either through voluntary sales or, when that failed, via eminent domain. They bulldozed the houses and prepared to build, but in 1952, a conservative city government took over and banned all public housing in the city leaving the Chavez Ravine housing project in limbo.
That's where it remained when Walter O'Malley spotted the site five years later on a helicopter tour of Los Angeles. By that time, the city had bought and bulldozed all but 20 homes. O'Malley bought as many of the remaining ones as he could, paying five times the appraisal value for them, but there were still a couple of holdouts who tried to fight the stadium in court. Their legal battle was financed by local theater owners, TV executives, and owners of the minor league San Diego Padres, all of whom feared competing with the Dodgers for the city's entertainment dollar. O'Malley prevailed in court, but a few stubborn residents, now technically squatters, still refused to leave. So in 1959, they were forcibly evicted as television cameras rolled. One of the holdouts, a woman named Aurora Fernandez, helped form an organization called Los Desterrados, the Uprooted. Members of the group swore they would never attend a game at Dodger Stadium. But within a few years, Aurora Fernandez was a diehard Dodger fan. They told us we had to move out of our homes And we'd be paid for our time The money we're told will soon be our own But we just can't stand all the life We've got to make way for a new kind of place At a small To design his new stadium, O'Malley chose architect Emil Prager, who had built the Tappan Zee Bridge in New York and had once renovated the White House. Dodger Stadium would be baseball's first privately financed ballpark since Yankee Stadium was built four decades earlier, although that comes with an asterisk, since O'Malley had acquired almost all the land for free, with the city swapping it to him in exchange for Wrigley Field. The site for the new park was 325 picturesque acres of rugged hills, scrub brush, and eucalyptus trees. Building it would take three years and become the largest construction project in baseball history. First, the location of the playing field had to be flattened, which involved leveling a 300-foot hill. 
Then 25,000 separate pieces of concrete had to be cast, some of them weighing as much as 32 tons. Since there was no crane in North America large enough to do the heavy lifting, a special giant crane had to be imported, piece by piece, from Germany. O'Malley brainstormed dozens of features he wanted the park to have, some of them more practical than others. Among the ones that never materialized were a retractable roof to cover the infield, a compressed air system to blow constant breeze on the American flag, a Bellagio-style light show featuring fountains shooting water high in the air, a giant statue of baseball bats visible ten miles away, and trams that would transport fans from the distant parking lot to the stadium gate, for a small extra fee, of course. The architect, Prager, served as a check on O'Malley's more outlandish instincts, and worked with his client to make Dodger Stadium a bright, graceful, and classy structure. O'Malley's first stroke of genius was insisting on a color palette unlike anything seen in baseball before. He wanted to move far away from the decaying eastern stadiums with their dark wooden seats and dark cloudy skies and their dark steel pillars blocking people's views. Dodger Stadium would instead be a burst of color springing forth from a bright green patch of forest. O'Malley wanted it to be baseball's version of Disneyland, and he consulted with Walt Disney himself for advice. One brilliant move was outfitting each of the stadium's four decks with seats in a different pastel shade, with the colors selected to mimic Southern California's landscape. Yellow, representing sand, orange, representing the sun, aqua, representing the ocean, and light blue, representing the sky. For anyone looking at the grandstand, especially when it was filled with fans in their white shirt sleeves, the effect was one of staring into a huge, brightly colored, layered wedding cake, as broadcaster Vin Scully loved to point out. And it wasn't just the seats. Everything from the outfield fence to the metal railings to the usher's uniforms sparkled with vibrant color. With all of this saturating one's senses, it was impossible to go to a game at Dodger Stadium and not be in a good mood, especially when the sun began to set, casting shadows on the San Gabriel Mountains in the distance and painting the sky a stunning variety of colors. All the leaves are brown and the sky is red. I've been for a walk on a winter's day. I'd be safe and warm if I was in a California dreaming on such a winter's day. The unique vista certainly made an impression on at least one young fan. Michael Leahy spent much of his childhood going to games at Dodger Stadium before growing up to become a writer for the Washington Post. Now he's written a new book about the Dodgers called The Last Innocence, The Collision of the Turbulent 60s and the Los Angeles Dodgers. It's set in just a beautiful location in Los Angeles. And when you arrived in Dodger Stadium in its early years, uh, it was like going to paradise. You would come from different, very hot places in Los Angeles uh, during hot Los Angeles summers, and you would arrive at the stadium and see this if you were coming for an evening game and got there early for batting practice and saw the sunset, you'd see this sort of purple sunset in the hills beyond the stadium. This was a slice 
of California paradise to which people flock. Having gotten the aesthetic he wanted, Walter O'Malley turned to more practical concerns, such as building enough parking spaces for 17,000 cars. Half the stadium site was reserved for its giant multi-level parking lot, with curved rows of cars radiating out from the stadium in the middle, making the whole thing look from overhead like some geometric crop circle. And unlike many parking lots, it wasn't some dystopian hellscape. It was green, with trees and succulents and giant potted plants growing between rows of parking spaces. Even today, Dodger Stadium remains the only Major League ballpark that employs a full-time exterior landscaper. And of course, anywhere you have that many cars in one place, you need gasoline. In exchange for $16 million, O'Malley sold the team's radio broadcasting rights to Union Oil, as well as giving the company exclusive rights to advertise inside the stadium and the right to sell their gasoline on site. If you've ever been to Dodger Stadium and wondered why there's a 76 station in the parking lot, that's why. Some owners would have been satisfied with their stadium having the largest scoreboard in the world, but not Walter O'Malley. He installed the two largest scoreboards in the world, one behind the left field stands and the other behind the right field stands, each 75 feet wide and containing 17,000 light bulbs. The iconic hexagonal shape of the scoreboards, combined with the giant palm trees planted alongside them, gave Dodger Stadium what became its most distinctive visual motif. One area of special concern for O'Malley was the toilets. In an era when every ballpark stank of stale urine, O'Malley was determined to ensure that Dodger Stadium had no such foul odors. In a departure from the procedure used at most ballparks, O'Malley made sure every stadium seat was cleaned thoroughly every day and he ordered particular attention to be paid to the 48 restrooms. This, it turned out, was the feature that would most impress visitors to Dodger Stadium during the following decades. It's complete and utter cleanliness relative to other ballparks. You could eat off the floors. Utility infielder John Kennedy. They kept the thing immaculate. The uh, outside, the landscaping and everything was immaculate. Uh, you know, I tell people, I say, when you pull into that place, you can't believe the landscape. And then when you're in the stands, to look out on a clear day and look out over this, uh, into the mountains and everything, it's just magnificent. Dodger Stadium even reinvented that most basic of ballpark foods, the hot dog. Instead of being steamed or cooked on rollers like at most ballparks, every 10-inch Dodger dog was grilled giving it a distinctive taste that placed it head and shoulders above the competition. Or, as Vin Scully might say, easternmost in quality, westernmost in flavor. Today, it's the only ballpark hot dog that has its own Wikipedia page. In the spring of 1962, as workers were frantically preparing for the stadium's debut, a rare spring storm dumped 17 inches of rain on the site. To get the field dry enough for baseball, O'Malley hired helicopters to hover overhead and dry it with the wind from their rotor blades. The sickly brown grass, meanwhile, was painted with green vegetable dye. The fans hardly noticed or cared. In its debut season, Dodger Stadium broke baseball's single-season attendance record by drawing 2.8 million fans, and then topped that figure 18 more times during the O'Malley era. In fact, as of the day I'm recording this, the Dodgers have sold 209,277,239 tickets in their history, which is the highest total attendance, by far, of any sports franchise in the history of the world. Over the years, a number of factors have helped Dodger Stadium break attendance records, including its perfect weather, 
convenient location, attractiveness as a venue, and perhaps most importantly, the high quality of the baseball played inside it. Reason number three, the left arm of God. When the Dodgers moved west, the bizarre dimensions of the Coliseum were a nightmare for their left-handed pitchers, especially a 23-year-old southpaw named Sandy Koufax. Koufax had pitched well in the Dodgers last season in Brooklyn, but in the Coliseum, batters took aim at the tall screen in left field and hit twice as many doubles off him as the year before. Afraid of giving up even simple fly balls, he started nibbling at the strike zone, walking six batters per nine innings. His earned run average shot up by an entire run. In 1960, after the last game of the season, the frustrated Koufax slammed his glove into the clubhouse trash can and stalked out, declaring he was quitting baseball for good. An attendant fished it out of the trash, and it was waiting for him at spring training the next year. In 1961, helped by adjustments to both his attitude and his pitching mechanics, Koufax became a new pitcher, leading the league in strikeouts. The next year, when the team moved into Dodger Stadium, he found the huge ballpark much more forgiving of pitching mistakes, and he began a five-year stretch of dominance that has never been equaled. Koufax threw only two pitches, a fastball that seemed to rise on its way toward home plate, and a curveball that often had batters flinching, Maury Wills style, before breaking over the plate. Using just those two pitches, Koufax posted a 1.95 earn run average between 1962 and 1966, winning 111 games and losing only 34. Koufax took baseball more seriously than any other Dodger. In between starts, he refused to let himself get distracted by golf, or women, or beer, although he enjoyed all three of those things. On the mound, he was all business, not particularly interested in what his catcher or manager had to say on visits to the mound. He was friendly with his teammates, but close to very few of them. Maury Wills, infielder Dick Trasuski, but even those guys he rarely saw away from the ballpark. As the team audiophile, he spent most of his time monkeying around with stereo systems, speakers, subwoofers, and the like. If you were looking for expert advice on the latest electronics to buy, Sandy Koufax was the man to see. Well, Sandy, Sandy was very quiet. That's outfielder Ron Fairley. Sandy pretty much kept to himself. And I roomed with Sandy for a while, run one year, and we had a lot of room service. We had a lot of room service because every time we went somewhere, uh, people would interrupt him having dinner, and you know, ask for autographs and everything. And, and Sandy was not was not big in that. He signed every time that happened. He signed autographs. But the whole thing is, you know, as he said, he's, I just want to go somewhere and have dinner without being bothered. But like I said, he signed every time that happened. He signed as many autographs as as whatever the people were requesting. So we we kind of. We knew what the talent was with Sandy, and we respected that. Uh, Sandy, super guy, great teammate, but he kind of kept to himself a little bit. And he was not the outgoing, you know, guy that would care around a, a lot in in the clubhouse. He went about his business, and uh, good golly, could he pitch? Wow. In 1963, when Koufax won 25 games, plus the Cy Young and MVP awards, the nation really began to take notice of him. The World Series that year was a matchup between baseball's greatest pitcher and its most beloved slugger, Mickey Mantle of the New York Yankees. The Yankees were still baseball royalty in those days, and the Dodgers were nervous. So nervous, in fact, that Koufax's catcher, John Roseborough, 
surreptitiously shared a bottle of brandy with Maury Wills in the Yankee Stadium clubhouse before Game 1. The 1963 series was seen by 60 million people on television, at the time the largest audience ever for a sporting event. In Los Angeles, so many workers went home sick at precisely 10 o'clock a.m., the starting time for Game 1 back in New York, that newspapers called it the Blue Flu. A decade later, the excitement surrounding the series would be memorably expressed by Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Koufax. Koufax kicks. He delivers. It's up the middle. It's a base hit. Richardson is rounding first. He's going for second. The ball's in the deep right center. Davidson over in the corner. Cut the ball off. Here comes the throw. Richardson rounding first. He goes into second. He slides. He's in there. He's safe. It's a double. He's in there, Martin. You look at Richardson. He's on second base. Kovacs is in big fucking trouble. Big trouble, baby. All right. Here's Tresh is the next batter. Tresh looks in. Kovacs. Kovacs gets the signs from Roseboro. He kicks once. He pumps. He fires. It's a strike. Kovacs' curveball is snapping off like a fucking firecracker. All right. Here he comes for the next pitch. Tresh swings. It's a long fly ball. And he left center. Fucking wiener before I die. the great Mickey Mantle now. Yeah. Here comes the pitch. Mantle swings. Oh it's God. a fucking yeah. home run. Unfortunately for Yankees fans, that Mantle homer was just one of three runs New York would score off Koufax in the series. In his first at-bat, Mantle took a called third strike, turned around to Roseboro, and asked, How are you supposed to hit that shit? The rest of the Yankees wondered the same thing. In Game 1, Koufax broke the record for most strikeouts in a World Series game, whiffing 15 batters and winning 5-2. to two. In Game 4, he allowed just that Mantle homer, pitching a complete game, walking nobody, and winning 2-1. to one. The Dodgers shocked everyone by sweeping the series in four games. The following year, late in the season, Koufax hurt his pitching elbow, diving back into second base on a pickoff attempt. His career would never be the same. He would never again be able to pitch without pain. With his elbow swelling up grotesquely, doctors diagnosed Koufax with traumatic arthritis, a condition triggered by injury. The arthritis would eventually drive Koufax to a shockingly young retirement, but not before he pitched his last two and a half seasons in extreme pain. Doctors drained fluid from his elbow, administered painful cortisone shots, and put him on an anti-inflammatory called butazolidin, whose side effects are so dangerous that the FDA has since banned it for use in humans. You can still give it to horses, though. Every time he pitched, Koufax would lather a hot ointment called capsulin, made from the active ingredient in chili peppers, all over his arm, shoulder, and back. The stuff was so strong that it burned his skin, turning it deep red, and his teammates standing as far as 30 feet away would get sick inhaling the fumes. Koufax rubbed it on several times a game, the idea apparently being that if he couldn't feel his arm, it wouldn't hurt him. Remarkably, despite the physical duress, the quality of Sandy's pitching actually improved during the last two seasons of his career. Endurance was a point of pride for Koufax. He threw 27 complete games in 1965 and another 27 in 1966, figures that have rarely been topped since. Sandy gave us as much as a pitcher could give, one teammate recalled. That's why he was exhausted so much. Once, the Dodgers were playing in Houston, where it was so hot and humid their uniforms would soak through with sweat before the game even started. 
With Koufax looking weary on the mound, manager Walter Alston went out to ask if he needed help from the bullpen. I feel like shit, Koufax said, but I'm better than anybody you have out there. In September 1965, Koufax pitched the eighth perfect game in baseball history against a Chicago Cubs lineup that featured three Hall of Famers. The fielders behind him were nervous wrecks in the late innings, not wanting to make an error and fumble a chance at history. It was tough to play defense behind Koufax because batters so seldom actually put the ball into play. Fielders got bored, their concentration lapsed, their reaction time slowed by a split second. You'd just start watching Sandy like you were a fan, the outfielder Tommy Davis said. Koufax, as if sensing this, made it a moot point, striking out the last six hitters in what remains one of the finest pitched games of all time. Sandy always had good stuff and he always threw hard and, he, and many, many times he had a perfect game or a no-hitter going into the fourth or fifth inning. First baseman Wes Parker. It was not uncommon. So I really didn't pay much attention to it until about the seventh inning, and that's when I started realizing, oh, wait a minute, this is this is beyond a no-hitter. This is a perfect game he's got going. And I became very nervous because I didn't want to screw up this perfect game by making an error or, or dropping a ball or doing something really silly out there because at that time I think there were only maybe 11 or 12 perfect games in the history of the game. And this was um, over a 90-year period, so I got found myself getting very nervous, and, and then as it turned out, I needn't have been because he struck out the last six hitters. Uh, the entire defense could have stayed on the bench, and and it wouldn't have mattered. He was, he was that good. He was dominant, especially in the last uh, three innings. A month later, the Dodgers got an unfortunate break when Game 1 of the World Series fell on the Jewish holy day of Yom Kippur. Koufax wasn't devoutly religious, but out of respect for his heritage and his millions of Jewish fans, he made the principal decision to sit out the game. That was not a problem. That was not an issue with the team. Ron Fairley again. That was Yom Kippur, and out of respect for Jan, uh, Sandy being Jewish, and out of respect to his mother and father, uh, he declined to pitch the opening game. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We pitched Don Drysdale. Drysdale was a 23-game winner that year. I mean, good golly. I mean, it wasn't like we ran some rinky-dink out there on the mound. Drysdale started, and we'll pitch Koufax the next day. What difference does it make? Koufax, Drysdale, Drysdale, Koufax. It make any difference. Pitching in Koufax's place, Don Drysdale got clobbered by the Minnesota Twins in Game 1, giving up seven runs. When Walter Alston pulled him from the game in the third inning, the easygoing Drysdale quipped, I bet you wish I was Jewish too. So, uh, we got a chuckle. That's the only thing that was funny about that game. Koufax surprisingly lost Game 2, giving Minnesota a two-games-to-none lead. But the Dodgers won the next two, and in Game 5, Koufax pitched a four-hit shutout striking out 10 and walking just one. When reporters asked him how he felt afterward, he said, like I'm 100 years old. The series eventually came down to a decisive seventh game, one game for all the marbles, which gave Alston a tough decision to make. The big argument prior to the ball game was, Drysdale had three days rest, Koufax had two days rest. So who do you start, Drysdale or Koufax, in the final game? And the decision was based simply upon the fact we're going to start Colfax because Sandy is more muscular than that of Drysdale. His body was, was a little bit different. 
And Sandy took a long time to warm up to get his muscles loose. And it would be a lot easier for Sandy to start, see how far he could go, and Drysdale, who could warm up a lot quicker, if Sandy gets into trouble, we can have Don of the bullpen let him warm up and bring him into the game. If you switch that around, Sandy would take too long to get loose. And so we started Sandy just to see how far he could go. And Sandy kept getting out of the innings. He got into trouble a couple of times, and that's why Alston had Drysdale warming up the bullpen. But Sandy kept getting out of the innings, kept getting out of innings. And then, like I've seen so many times when Sandy pitched, if he were going to have trouble in a game, it was generally in the early innings. The more he pitched, the longer he stayed in the game, the better he threw. As far as his catcher was concerned, starting Koufax was an easy decision. If you had any choice at all between Koufax and another pitcher, you had to pick Sandy, John Roseborough said. So the exhausted Koufax started the game on two days rest, and Drysdale literally spent the whole game in the bullpen warming up, starting in the very first inning. Just before game time, Koufax had the trainer rub two entire tubes of capsulin onto him, and when he posed for a pregame photo with the opposing pitcher, Jim Cott, Cott got the sniffles and his eyes began to water. During the first few innings, Koufax couldn't get his curveball over the plate. He escaped a jam in the first and another one in the third, but he still could not throw the curve for a strike. Finally, in the fifth inning, with two runners on base, he summoned his catcher and infielders to the mound and told them he would throw nothing but fastballs the rest of the game. We'll just have to fucking blow him away, he said. And he did just that. After the meeting on the mound, throwing nothing but fastballs, Koufax retired 14 of the last 15 batters, completing a 2 to nothing shutout and clinching the Dodgers' second World Series title in three years. But here's the fella who gave the Dodgers the championship, Sandy, in Los Angeles, when you pitched your 7 to nothing shutout. You were quoted as saying after the game, I feel a hundred years old. So today, how do you feel? 101. 101. <laughs> I feel great, Betty. I know I don't have to go out there anymore for about four months. <laughs> Sandy, it appeared from upstairs that your fastball was really your only pitch for quite some time. Yes, it was. I don't know what it was today. I didn't have the curveball at all, and I wasn't getting it over. And I just stayed with the fastball and tried to get it in pretty good spots. And when I got the lead, I tried to keep him from pulling the ball if I could. When Jim Gilliam sat here in the ninth inning and watched you on television, he turned and said to me, he looks like a fighter who has been hit and is now fighting on instinct. Is that over-dramatizing, or were you that tired? No, I, I'll tell you, I, I feel like uh, I was a little bit more tired in the, uh, in the last ball game I pitched here, and I know I was more tired uh, the day we won the pennant against Milwaukee, but uh, I think it was a lot hotter in Los Angeles, and uh, the cool weather... Uh, keeps you from tiring a little bit. I felt like uh, my fastball last three or four innings was as good or better than it was early in the ball game, which I really didn't expect uh, on two days rest. I figured by the end of the ball game, I'd have to go to the curveball. Let's see. You've had four no-hitters, a perfect game. You have struck out 18. You have a World Series record of 15 in one game. Where does this one fit in as far as thrills are concerned? I don't know of any. Uh, this has got to be as high as any of them. This whole year is a thrill. Uh, we were a ball club that everybody said uh, was going to finish fifth, and we lost Tommy Davis. They thought we were going to finish eighth. And we went on to win a pennant, and uh, everybody did such a great job. Uh, Lou Johnson, who hit the home run today, uh, he came up when Tommy got hurt and did a great job and carried us for the first ten days to two weeks he was here. And uh, I think that got us over the hump. Uh, without uh, Lou coming up and doing that great job right then, 
I think uh, the whole ball club probably would have sagged a little bit. Sandy, thank you so very much. And now go on back and sit down and relax a little while. Thank you, Vinny. Sandy Kopax, the man who hit the home run, who hit two home runs in the series, who was called way out by his teammates, way out Lou Johnson. You're the greatest, Sandy. You're the greatest, baby. <laughs> Lou, did you know your home run hit the foul pole? Well, I made my turn, Vinny, and uh, as you know, momentarily, I stayed at home plate to see whether the ball was going out. Reason number four, Hollywood. All aboard for Night Train! Hollywood had been the center of the film industry since the 19-teens, and when the Dodgers moved to town, movie stars and entertainers embraced them with open arms, as if the team's arrival was the final step in transforming Los Angeles into a truly big league city. Shiny new Dodger Stadium was the place to be, and Walter O'Malley did everything he could to attract celebrities to the games. On any given night, one of the box seats might be occupied by Bob Hope, Jack Benny, Cary Grant, Elizabeth Taylor, Jimmy Stewart, or Frank Sinatra, all of whom were Dodger fans. Danny Kaye, the comedian and singer who'd been a Dodger fan since his childhood days in Brooklyn, loved the team so much that he asked his songwriter, who was also his wife, to write him a tune about the team. Called the D-O-D-G-E-R-S song, It told the story of a fictional game between the Dodgers and Giants, and became one of Kay's most requested hits. So I say D, I say D-O, D-O-D, D-O-D-G, D-O-D-G-E-R-S, team, 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 oh. The Dodger players were happy to see famous faces in the stands, but as author Michael Leahy points out, these famous faces were usually even more thrilled to meet the players. The team was as glamorous in Los Angeles as those stars, and and we should talk about that. You know, though once in a while you would have people like Frank Sinatra and Doris Day uh, and Milton Berle and others coming to the game, uh, the players were, uh, I think it's fair to say the players in that venue, while they were all in that venue, the players, Koufax, Maury Wills, Drysdale and others were bigger, uh, remarkably, than these film idols and uh, singing idols. Um, it is it is hard to exaggerate uh, the stature that Koufax, Wills, and Drysdale enjoyed in Los Angeles in that period, and by extension, the, 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 that the team did. You left your heart in paradise, you left it all to roll the dice with me. And I will shake away the cloudy skies with a California lullaby. And when you're frozen with desire, we'll put our toes up to the fire, and I will sing your cares away. The players were so well known, in fact, that almost all of them were offered chances to try show business in their spare time. Sandy Koufax, Don Drysdale, and Tommy Davis appeared on Bob Hope's TV show. Maury Wills, who was not only a banjo hitter but also an avid banjo player, was hired to play the instrument in a Las Vegas lounge act. 
Koufax landed TV roles playing, among other things, a cop and a Civil War soldier. John Roseborough played an African-American detective on Dragnet. Chuck Connors, a former Dodger player, had become a huge TV star as the Rifleman, and he and Don Drysdale co-starred in an episode. Drysdale also appeared on shows like Leave it to Beaver and The Brady Bunch. And Jerry Mathers as the Beaver. Who? Beaver. Oh, yeah, yes, Beaver, yes. Well, I might get out there sometime. And if I ever did, well, I'd come and see you play. And would you want to grab my glove for me or something? Well, Beaver, I'd be glad to. What kind of glove do you have? A worn spawn. <laughs> well, I'll autograph it anyway. It's been nice talking to you boys. Goodbye, Mr. Drysdale. Bye, Mr. Drysdale. Goodbye, boys. Yes, it was really me. Even the famed Mr. Ed got a tryout with the Dodgers, even though he was a horse, of course. In one episode filmed at Dodger Stadium, Mr. Ed batted against Koufax, holding the bat between his teeth, hitting a home run, and galloping around the bases. <laughs> Nobody loved the Hollywood life more than Maury Wills. According to his roommate, John Roseborough, Wills was, quote, an incorrigible panty bandit who once tried to steal Muhammad Ali's girlfriend while Ali was sitting right there. Wills spent so much time chasing women on road trips that Roseboro finally got fed up and requested that Wills be given his own room. I love him like a brother, but I've got to get away from him, Roseboro said. Let me shake away the cloudy skies with the California One woman Wills paid particular attention to was Doris Day, the top female box office star in the country and also an avid Dodger fan. In 1962, when Day gave Wills a new stereo system as a reward for breaking the stolen base record, rumors began that they were having an affair. Rumors that Maury Wills later claimed were true. It is something to, that, to this day that Doris Day fiercely denies. I shouldn't use the word fiercely. It is something to this day that Doris Day denies. Uh, but the Dodgers did not doubt Maury Will's story. Um, and uh, uh, the general manager of the time, Buzzy Bavese, summoned Maury to a meeting in which he ordered Maury uh, not to date Doris Day. There were several things going on. One, there was obviously a taboo in the early 1960s about interracial romances. And beyond that, both Wills and Doris Day uh, were married at the time. But Basie summoned, again, summoned Wills to his office and uh, let Wills know quite emphatically uh, that, it, uh, that he did not want Wills dating Doris Day. Wills, terrified of the possible consequences, heeded Bevesi's warning. When newspaper reports asked him about the affair, he denied it. The Dodgers feared that if word got out, it would cause major damage to the reputation of one of their most marketable players. But of course, the stakes were greater still for Doris Day, whose goody-goody on-screen persona had earned her the nickname the world's oldest virgin. As the blonde, blue-eyed embodiment of tame American womanhood, her entire livelihood relied on her virginal reputation. The Dodgers were baseball's most racially welcoming franchise, but even they were not prepared to take integration this far, and neither, at the time, was Hollywood. 
Fade Away is sponsored today by Audible. For listeners of Fade Away, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Just visit their website at audibletrial.com slash fadeaway. I love listening to audiobooks, and Audible is the best place to get them. With over 180,000 titles to choose from, and an easy-to-use app that makes it simple to listen on any device. Seriously, this thing is so easy to use on your phone. One title Fadeaway listeners might enjoy is The Best Team Money Can Buy, The Los Angeles Dodgers' Wild Struggle to Build a Baseball Powerhouse by Molly Knight, narrated by Hilary Huber. You can get Molly's book, which is great by the way, or any other book of your choice for free within seconds by visiting audibletrial.com fadeaway. That's audibletrial.com slash fadeaway. Reason number five, Vinny. Of all the things that were special about the Dodgers, perhaps the most special was the 30-something redhead in the broadcast booth. Vin Scully grew up in the streets of Manhattan, the son of a widowed Irish immigrant who ran a boarding house. He cherished the eight years he'd spent broadcasting in Brooklyn, but it was in Los Angeles that he became a legend, the living embodiment of everything people loved about baseball. He has become as much a part of Southern California as the freeways, Sports Illustrated wrote in 1964, when Scully was just 36 years old. Vince Scully's voice is better known to most Los Angelinos than their next-door neighbors is. As we've discussed, the Coliseum, the Dodgers' first home in L.A., was a horrible place to watch baseball. The closest seats were a long way from the field, John Roseboro said, and the farthest ones were ridiculous. Fortunately, the Dodgers' move to the Coliseum coincided with the invention of the transistor radio. Until the mid-1950s, a radio had been a piece of furniture, the size of a cabinet. You'd put it in your living room and you'd sit next to it and listen to it. But the advent of transistor technology enabled electronics companies to make small portable radios that fit in your pocket. Put a couple of batteries in it and you could take it anywhere. The first model came out in 1954, and by 1958 they were everywhere, despite a price tag of 30 to $40, the equivalent of 250 to 350 bucks today. The transistors were a perfect solution to the Coliseum's lousy seats. If you were sitting too far away to see what was going on, or if you were new to baseball, as many Angelinos were, all you had to do was tune your transistor dial to Vin Scully describing the action. At every game, Scully's baritone voice washed over the crowd, coming from thousands of tiny speakers. You could hear it anywhere, in the restrooms, the concession lines, the parking lot. Scully and L.A., it turned out, were made for each other. Not only had Major League Baseball never been played in a stadium as large as the Coliseum, it had never before been played in a city as geographically spread out as Los Angeles. The city's 6.5 million people mostly commuted to their jobs on the infamous freeway system, and while they were stuck in traffic during evening rush hour, it was usually Vin Scully's voice that accompanied them home. I heard Grandpa on my transistor radio Turning his bones 20 years ago And he said, kid, there's something that I'd like to show you Get your things, it's time for us to go So I grabbed my backpack and my flashlight And a bag of caramel corn I got my bicycle and the radio And I headed on the road I said, I'm ready 
During the 1960s, 30% of all radio listeners in Southern California tuned into Scully's broadcasts, an astounding ratings number, which also helped fuel attendance at the ballpark. When the team moved into Dodger Stadium, Scully and all those transistor radios followed. His, his voice, his, his, his manner, his style, his voice really elevated the game to theater, uh, which explained why tens of thousands of Los Angeles fans, when they would come to the stadium, would come with their transistor, little transistor radios. It was as if Scully, his voice conferred legitimacy on the event. He turned it into theater. He was, he was sort of a poet, the great bard of the game. And it's clear, Eric, that uh, Vin Scully was the most important Dodger in history more important than any of the players, more important than the owner at the time, Walter O'Malley. Vin Scully is the man who principally brought uh, people to the ballpark. As Robert Creamer wrote in SI, Scully's pleasantly nasal baritone comes out of radios on the back counters of orange juice stands, from transistors held by people sitting under trees at barbershops and bars, and from cars everywhere. Parked cars, cars waiting for red lights to turn green, cars passing you at 65 on the freeways, cars edging along next to you in traffic jams. It's been years since I've heard on my transistor radio Yet I keep going to where it seems I'm meant to go And I finally realize what he wanted to show me what I've been and what I am is the show. Scully's success was due in part to technology and good timing, but mostly it was due to his immense talent as a broadcaster. He explained the game to newbies without alienating the hardcore fans. He dropped literary references, but he did it with an utter lack of pretense. His eye for detail and his knack for choosing the right word were extraordinary. We all knew he was the best announcer in the business. Wes Parker again. I had listened to him here in Los Angeles before I became a player with the Dodgers because they came in 1958. And I didn't start uh, my career until 1963. So I had five years to listen and enjoy him. And, and I think where he's really underrated, because people usually talk about his voice and the storytelling, I think what's underrated about him is his intelligence. He's so well-read. He devours books. He's got a brilliant mind. And he strings words together so beautifully. He, um, he would have been a wonderful writer, I think, had he chosen to do that. In fact, uh, he hardly ever, when he was at his peak, would go back and, and change a word that he used or recorrect himself. He just always got it right the first time. If anyone listening uh, saw the movie Amadeus, uh, Salieri, who was a rival of Mozart, would would get so angry because, as he said, it appeared when Mozart wrote music that he was taking dictation from God. And that's how we felt about Ben Scully, is that why are his first drafts perfect? How can an announcer announce a, a complicated play, like a bases loaded triple or a, a triple play or a, or a difficult double play or a rundown play? 
how can an announcer do it so perfectly time after time without ever using the wrong word and what without ever having to go back and redescribe what he had just said the first time because his first draft was always perfect speaking of perfect if you're a longtime baseball fan you probably know that scully's call of sandy koufax's perfect game is considered the greatest single broadcast in the history of baseball to listen to it is to hear an artist at the top of his game painting a picture with words even the chicago cubs as they stood in the on-deck circle waiting to face koufax were entranced by Scully's description of the action, which they could hear, of course, coming from the thousands of transistor radios in the audience. I highly recommend listening to the whole thing. But for now, pull up a chair, and let's hear just a bit of it. And Koufax with a new ball takes a hitch at his belt and walks behind the mound. I would think that the mound at Dodger Stadium right now is the loneliest place in the world. Sandy, fussing, looks in to get his sign. 0-2 oh, to Amalfitano. The strike two pitch to Joe. Fastball, swung on him, missed strike three. He is one out away from the promised land. And Harvey Keene is coming up. is batting for Bob Henley. The time on the scoreboard is 9.44. The date, September the 9th, 1965. And Koufax working on veteran Harvey Keene. Sandy into his windup and the pitch of fastball for a strike. He has struck out, by the way, five consecutive batters. And that's gone unnoticed. Sandy ready in the strike one pitch. Very high, and he lost his hat. He really forced that one. That's only the second time tonight where I have had the feeling that Sandy threw instead of pitched, trying to get that little extra. And that time, he tried so hard, his hat fell off. He took an extremely long stride to the plate, and Torborg had to go up to get it. One and one to Harvey Keen. Now he's ready. Fastball high, ball two. You can't blame a man for pushing just a little bit now. Sandy backs off, mops his fire, runs his left index finger along his fire, drives it off on his left hand leg. All the while, Keen just waiting. Now Sandy looks in. Into his windup and the 2-1 pitch to Keen. Swung on and missed, strike two. It is 9.46 p.m. Two and two to Harvey Keene. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed the perfect game. Reason number six, the rivalry. You're not going to believe this, but there are actually a number of people in the world who believe that Yankees-Red Sox is the best rivalry in baseball history. There's a word for people like that. Insane. 
Now, it's certainly true that over the last 20 years, Boston and New York have had, without question, the most heated rivalry in baseball. But historically speaking, that rivalry has usually been one-sided and fairly tame, the occasional flare-up in 1949 or 1978 notwithstanding. A great rivalry has to have competitiveness, and the sad fact is that for most of the 20th century, this rivalry didn't have it. Before 1920, the Red Sox were great, and the Yankees were lousy. After 1920, the Yankees were great, and the Red Sox were mostly lousy. Looking at things from a broader historical perspective, the fiercest, greatest rivalry in baseball is that between the Dodgers and the Giants. No other comes remotely close. The two teams first met in 1889, when they faced off in a primordial version of the World Series, and they've been playing each other, and hating each other, ever since. They hated each other in 1913, when Wilbert Robinson, John McGraw's best friend and consigliere, threw a beer in McGraw's face and announced he was leaving the Giants to manage the Dodgers. They hated each other in 1934, when a reporter asked Giants manager Bill Terry what he thought of Brooklyn's team. Is Brooklyn still in the league? Terry asked, sarcastically, before being knocked out of the pennant race by the Dodgers a few months later. The Giants and Dodgers have hated each other for 127 years, but they have never hated each other as much as they did during the 1960s. Things often got vicious, especially in San Francisco, where Candlestick Park became famous for the drunken boorishness of its patrons. As one Dodger said, If you were the enemy, the fans would lean over and razz you and cuss you and spit at you and drop things on you every step of the way. And we defy, defy the J-I, J-I-N, J-I-N-T. J-I-N-T-S. Giants! In 1962, the Dodgers fielded one of the finest teams in franchise history. Maury Wills stole 104 bases. Tommy Davis had 153 RBIs. Don Drysdale won 25 games. And Sandy Koufax won the ERA title. In late September, L.A. led San Francisco by four games with seven left to play. But Koufax was injured, and the Dodgers sputtered to the finish line allowing the Giants to tie them and force a three-game playoff. The Giants had beaten the Dodgers in a similar playoff back in 1951, and this time the Giants tried to gain an advantage in the same way they had back then, by cheating. Back in 51, the Giants rigged up an elaborate buzzer system, which allowed them to steal the Dodgers' signs. This time, they ordered their groundskeeper to soak the infield dirt until it became a muddy quagmire, so that Maury Wills, with his game-changing speed, would have nothing but mud puddles to run on. The team split the first two games. The third game of the 1962 playoff had so many twists and tragedies it could be the subject of a Shakespeare play, but let's just summarize by saying that the Dodgers blew the game with a series of decisions so bizarre that the competence of manager Walter Alston was called into question. An infielder was moved out of position just before a key hit. A well-rested Don Drysdale offered to pitch, but the offer was declined so Alston could save him for the World Series. A wild reliever named Stan Williams was allowed to walk the bases loaded despite showing obvious signs of fatigue. And on and on it went. The Giants won the playoff and advanced to the World Series. When the Dodgers got back to their clubhouse, it was still full of the champagne and liquor that had been ordered for the celebration. The players ignored the champagne, but they cracked open the whiskey bottles and started drowning their sorrows and it turned out the Dodgers were mean drunks. 
As they polished off the bottles, they threw the empties against the clubhouse wall until the floor was covered with shards of glass. Some players ripped up their uniforms. Others cursed at no one in particular. Several players cursed at one man in particular, the manager, Alston, whose mismanagement of the bullpen they blamed for the loss. Alston, never the inspirational leader of men type, retreated into his office and locked the door. Some of the players started banging on the door and shouting at him. Come out of there, you gutless bastard, they yelled at their boss. Tell us about your strategies, skipper, said John Roseborough. It was the worst scene I ever saw with the Dodgers. It was the one time we did not conduct ourselves with class. Even Roseborough, who liked Alston, admitted that the manager had blown the game. He was slow-witted, Roseborough said. He missed some opportunities because he didn't see them fast enough and seized them fast enough. I felt like I could outsmart the man at every turn. The Giants and Dodgers would have several other great pennant races in the 60s, including 1966, when the Dodgers eked out the title on the last day of the season. But no pennant race was more memorable than the one in 1965, which featured the most famous fight in baseball history, when an enraged Juan Marichal beat Roseboro over the head with a bat. Juan Marichal was not a violent man. He was usually happy and cheerful. He carried a picture of San Martin, the peacemaking saint, in his pocket. But in August of 1965, a bloody civil war had broken out in his home country, the Dominican Republic, and he was stuck pitching in the United States, unable to contact his family or find out whether they were safe. His teammate, Willie Mays, said Marichal shouldn't have even been playing. He was pretty strung out, full of fear and anger, and holding it inside, Mays said. Said Marichal, I just wanted the season to be over so I could go home. Marichal woke up on the morning of August 22nd in an ornery mood. Juan wanted to fight, a teammate said. He had the devil inside him that day. Marichal got irritated when Wills bunted the game's first pitch for a base hit, and from there it became a contest of tit for tat. Marichal threw at Wills' head in retaliation for the bunt. Koufax, always reluctant to throw at people, then tossed a token pitch well behind Willie Mays. Marichal then threw at LA's Ron Fairley. Roseboro, not trusting Koufax to retaliate properly, decided to take matters into his own hands. While returning the ball to the mound after a pitch, Roseboro intentionally whizzed the throw right by Marichal's ear. Marichal called Roseboro a dirty name in Spanish, then Roseboro insulted Marichal's mother, and then, the next thing anyone knew, a crazed Juan Marichal was pounding Roseboro over the head with a baseball bat. Meanwhile, all hell was breaking loose around them. Another giant, Tito Fuentes, grabbed a bat and started waving it around. LA's Lou Johnson started throwing punches at anybody wearing a San Francisco uniform. A Dodger reliever charged at Marichal like a mad bull, but the bat-wielding pitcher scurried behind a wall of his Giants teammates who protected him from the enraged Dodgers. Safe in his protective cocoon, Marichal continued to shout insults at Roseboro from afar. What a fucking nut, Dodgers coach Danny Ozark said. Roseboro, meanwhile, was stumbling around woozily, blood gushing from his head. There was nothing but blood where his left eye had been, Walter Alston said. Giants fans, who had cheered on the assault, 
now bombarded Roseboro with every epithet they could think of. Willie Mays, who had played Peacemaker from the beginning, sat in the dugout sobbing, cradling Roseboro's head in his lap, with his tears and Roseboro's blood both dripping onto his jersey. It was Mays' finest moment on a baseball field, his biographer later wrote. Roseboro was rushed to the emergency room, where doctors were able to save his eye. Meanwhile, Marichal was given what was likely the most lenient punishment in the history of baseball, an eight-day suspension, basically one start, and a fine of $1,750. National League President Warren Giles didn't want a suspension, even a richly deserved one, to decide the pennant race. At the time of the fight, the Dodgers were up in the standings by half a game, but afterward the Giants went on a tear, winning 14 in a row to take a four-and-a-half game lead. But then Los Angeles had an epic run of its own, winning 15 of the season's final 16 games to wrestle the pennant away from the Giants. It was proof that when the Dodgers and Giants got together, anything could happen. Further proof came a decade later when, of all people, Juan Marichal joined the Dodgers pitching staff. Reason number seven, Mr. O'Malley. Oh, I say O-M, O-M-A, O-M-A-L, O-M-A-L-L-E-Y, oh really? No O'Malley, Sandy Koufax, oh my Drysdale. Walter O'Malley's goal was never to run a baseball team. By trade, he was a lawyer specializing in wills and deeds. In 1944, he stumbled into an ownership share in the Brooklyn Dodgers, who needed someone to run the business side of the franchise, while the long-winded genius Branch Rickey ran the baseball side. With the outsized personalities of the two men, one front office wasn't big enough for the both of them. In 1950, O'Malley won a power struggle and kicked Rickey to the curb, and eight years later, when the city of New York refused to let him build a new stadium in Brooklyn, he moved the Dodgers to Los Angeles. He's a complicated man, Eric. Michael Leahy. On the one hand, he did, uh, he did so many things well, and there were some things he could have done clearly better. And on that list, among other things, he could have paid his players better. Uh, he could have led the drive for uh, the kind of uh, fair treatment uh, uh, in dealing with players, in, in paying players that uh, would have... Um, lessen some of the discord between players and management. But let's talk for a moment about all the things he did well. Uh, this was a man who strongly believed uh, in integrated ball clubs at a time when some teams in the major leagues uh, gave token acknowledgement to integration. Some teams were slow to integrate their teams. Uh, Walter O'Malley, uh, believed strongly in integration in the late 1940s, the 1950s, and early 1960s. And um, uh, this was not only a decision made by a socially conscious man, but a decision made by a smart owner who realized that uh, full equality and integration was also good business. 
Um, so the story of Walter O'Malley is forever complicated, but to be fair to Walter O'Malley, one must note all his extraordinary achievements as well as these things that he could have done better. Once on the West Coast, O'Malley was determined to turn the new Los Angeles Dodgers into baseball's model organization. He was tight-fisted where salaries were concerned, but spent lavishly on everything else, including the team's unique spring training facility. Back in the 40s, signing Jackie Robinson had made spring training a complicated issue, since Florida had rigid segregation laws that in some cases prohibited Robinson from even taking the field. Two other integrated teams, the Cleveland Indians and New York Giants, had solved this problem by training in the comparatively less racist state of Arizona, but they had trouble finding any opponents to play except for each other. The Dodgers tried a different solution. They purchased an abandoned Navy base in the small resort town of Vero Beach, Florida, and over the course of two decades, Walter O'Malley turned it into an idyllic mecca called Dodger Town, complete with a swimming pool, courts for volleyball, badminton, and tennis, pool tables, a golf course, and even a movie theater. Hundreds of players in the Dodgers organization all lived together in the former military barracks, as many as eight bunks to a room. It created a feeling of unity and even pride. Being a major leaguer was a special feeling, but being a Dodger was even more so. It was more special, and, and there were many reasons for it. Wes Parker. The first-class way we traveled, the first-class way we, first we were treated, the fact that we won... We were a winning organization, and uh, we had a, the best spring training site down in Vero Beach uh, because we saw the others, and there was no question we had more fields, more batting cages, more, more instructors, uh, more room to practice. I, I just, I don't see there's any question to uh, any doubt of that because so many players, too, would say, gosh, you know, I'd love to play for you guys. Can't you get Buzzy Bavese to make a trade and get me over to your ball club? Jimmy Wynn used to say that when he was with Houston. Joe Morgan used to say that when he was with Houston. Dodger Town had become a self-contained community out of necessity. In segregated Vero Beach, the team's African Americans found themselves unable to do much of anything. O'Malley was reluctant to go to bat against the city, so instead he and his son, Peter, focused on making sure the players had everything they needed at Dodger Town itself. The black players couldn't eat at restaurants in town, so the O'Malley's built a dining facility at Dodgertown. Golf courses turned African Americans away, so the team built its own integrated golf course. Black players couldn't go to Vero Beach's all-white movie theaters, so the Dodgers built their own and procured first-run movies to play in it. The local beaches were segregated too, but there was a limit to even Walter O'Malley's powers. He couldn't move the shoreline four miles inland. The O'Malley's did what they could, outfielder Lou Johnson said, but nothing the O'Malley's did was ever going to help us outside Dodgertown. O'Malley helped pay for Dodgertown and other expenditures by squeezing as much revenue as he could out of Dodger Stadium. He rented the stadium out to anyone willing to pay for it. The Beatles, the Harlem Globetrotters, Hollywood filmmakers, auto racing promoters, even politician Barry Goldwater. He also invested in a company called Skyatron, a forerunner of cable TV which promised to place set-top boxes in homes and charge customers a dollar to watch each Dodger game. The company went belly up, but it didn't hurt O'Malley's standing among his fellow baseball owners, who viewed him as a leader and a visionary. By the mid-60s, O'Malley was without question the most powerful owner in baseball, and even, many believed, its de facto commissioner. 
It's certainly true that he was usually able to wheedle the milquetoast baseball commissioner, Spike Eckert, into doing his bidding. When O'Malley died years later, the columnist Jim Murray wrote that he did more for baseball than any commissioner who ever ran it. I liked him very much. He was very hands-on. He treated the players, he and his family treated them beautifully. That includes his son, Peter. Walter was outgoing, gregarious, good sense of humor, loved the kid around. And he was really like a father to the players, as was everyone who worked for him. They treated us absolutely beautifully. One thing that made O'Malley's Dodgers stand out was the quality of travel. Major League teams were now beginning to fly to road games instead of taking trains, and the Dodgers did it in style. They didn't take commercial flights or hire rickety charters like the other teams. Instead, O'Malley spent nearly a million dollars on a custom plane, and when the team outgrew it in 1963, he bought another one twice as big, a Lockheed Electra that could fly from coast to coast nonstop. It had 66 seats, plus beds and card tables, and the outside was painted with the team's iconic logo in Dodger blue. The players loved the plane, and they loved O'Malley for buying it. As you perhaps know, we had our own airplane, the O'Malley's owned it, and they flew us uh, around in spring training to all the spring training sites for those games, whereas most other teams had to take a two and a half hour bus ride one way. So we were fresher, I think, for that reason, and after games we could just get on the plane and go, and, and when we were flying into a city, if there was a rainstorm, we could circle outside the city and wait for the rainstorm to pass before we landed, which was good because a lot of players are afraid of flying and they don't like to go through a bumpy flight. That was good and the fact that we were always treated first class when we checked in and out of hotels or needed medical care or were in traveling our uniforms being uh, always washed and clean and packed for us and unpacked when we got back to Dodger Stadium. The entire organization was very classy and that all filtered down from Walter O'Malley uh, down through all the executives uh, down to the players themselves. Reason number eight, Jackie's legacy. When the Dodgers signed Jackie Robinson in 1945, they became Black America's team. If you were an African American and a baseball fan, it went without saying that you were also a Dodger fan. The Dodgers made fools of the racists, pitcher Mudcat Grant said. That's why every black player in baseball would have been proud to wear that Dodger uniform. Many black players in baseball did wear the Dodger uniform. Twenty years in, they were still leading the way in integration, with eight African Americans on their 1965 roster. Other National League teams had followed their lead, developing stars like Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, Frank Robinson, Ernie Banks, Roberto Clemente, and Bob Gibson. But the American League was still mostly white. So were all the coaches and front office personnel in both leagues. The fact is, although baseball's African-American stars were paid well, worshipped by many, and treated well at the ballpark, they were still black men living in a white man's world. 
African-American celebrities had been facing this paradox for years. Back in 1948, the singer Nat King Cole purchased a home in an all-white section of Los Angeles, where his new neighbors circulated a petition to drive him out of the neighborhood. Cole stayed and spent the next two decades fending off racial slurs, epithet-laden graffiti, and even the poisoning of the family dog. When black players on the Dodgers looked for homes, they usually faced the same kind of discrimination. An African-American star like Maury Wills could find himself on the cover of Sports Illustrated one week and the very next week have difficulty getting served in some public establishments that discriminated against African-Americans. You know, the Civil Rights Act that uh, barred discrimination in restaurants and hotels, etc. The Civil Rights Act was not passed until July of 1964. So for great athletes like Maury Wills, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, and other great African-American stars, it was not unusual at all to face uh, acute discrimination and segregation while off the field, right? While in street clothes, while in venues where people might not immediately recognize them. You know, people who were on the covers of Sports Illustrated and Time Magazine and Life Magazine felt, found themselves beset uh, by the same uh, uh, discrimination, the same shoddy treatment as tens of millions of other African Americans. The black and white players on the Dodgers got along well, though there were still boundaries they didn't cross. For instance, white players roomed with white players, and black players roomed with black players. But by all accounts, there was no racial animosity. We were always a family, black and white alike, John Roseboro said. We did not all love one another, but nobody loves everyone in his family. We would fight for one another far more than we would fight with one another. Outfielder Ron Fairley put it this way. When you put on a, a baseball uniform, a football uniform, uh, it's, you're part of a team. And there's a mutual respect that you have uh, between the black players and the white players. We didn't have any problems. We didn't have any at all. Guys got along great. Nonetheless, racial resentment still burned in many African-American players. Once, when a reporter asked outfielder Lou Johnson why he attacked the ball so hard when batting, he replied, because it's fucking white. By 1965, there were only four men left on the Dodgers who had played with Jackie Robinson. Koufax, Drysdale, the hard-drinking pitcher Johnny Padres, and Jim Gilliam, who had recently retired and become a coach, only to unretire when it turned out the team still needed him on the field. Gilliam had been Robinson's successor as Brooklyn's second baseman, and he shared many of Jackie's characteristics. Both men were versatile infielders, willing to take a walk, who helped their teams win with their intelligence as much as their physical skills. Can you tell me a little bit about Jim Gilliam and what he was like both as a as Yeah, a people ask me who the most underrated player was on, on my clubs, my Dodger teams, and I would have to say Jim Gilliam, definitely. Wes Parker again. And he was a big influence on me because he was more or less the last holdover of, of regular starters from Brooklyn. Johnny Roseboro had played a little bit in Brooklyn, but he was a backup to Roy. So Jim was really the only one still around by the time I I came up. And I loved talking to him because he knew so much. He was very bright, and he had 
worshipped at the feet of Jackie Robinson, who was his hero. And he would pass along stories to me about Jackie. Jackie did this. Jackie did that. Jackie told me this. Jackie told me that. And about Duke Snyder and Gil Hodges. And, and those were my heroes when I grew up. So I was very attracted to Jim. I liked him enormously. I spent a lot of time around him and always hung on his stories or his advice because he was a, a smart player. Very, very smart player. He studied baseball. Hold up, play right. Pack of young souls got it by the street lights. Whipping through the city, I'm a great street hooligan. Lose it and do it again. City, we kicking it in. Showing us how to get up and get right. Get up and get right. LA on my mind. And we gon' be alright. I don't really know why I love the city that I'm from. Something about the sun. Something about this is why I wanna raise a son. Tell him this is where daddy lived when he was still young. When he was this tall, gotta love it all. Stop the police, the traffic and sprawl. And got love for the people that hate. So if they wanna leave, well, good, that's great. Cause we ain't about negativity. Bigotry, the hood's got history. Yeah, every face is a beautiful race. The hundred different tongues to call home the same place. Come to the city to chase after dreams. Come to find out that exactly what it seems nah, nah. trying to make means but beauty's in the struggle yeah. what i'm trying to say is that we bought about a hustle what Ooh, talk about the food if you want to eat you better come through like tacos from a chato and that's a chicken and waffles got most spots in la Brea, got fossils on august 11th 1965 11 days before the money child roseboro incident the sun was setting on a scorching hot day when the California Highway Patrol pulled over a 21-year-old black man in the Watts neighborhood for driving under the influence. The man had actually been drinking, but his mother and brother, who were riding with him, were outraged at what they saw as rude and unnecessarily rough treatment by the cops. The man refused to get in the back of the police car, shouting, Go ahead, kill me, to the officers, as his mother jumped on the back of one of the cops. By then, backup had arrived and a crowd of onlookers had started to form. Rumors spread like wildfire through the neighborhood, some of them true, some of them not. The cops had brutally attacked a pregnant woman, people said. It probably wasn't true, but it didn't really matter. The residents of Watts had decided this was the last straw. Now was when they would finally take a stand against decades of police brutality, false arrests, and beatings. A few months earlier, Jackie Robinson had written a newspaper column warning that riots might occur unless America started making faster progress on civil rights. Now his dire prediction came true in the last place he would have expected, his hometown of Los Angeles. For the next six days, much of L.A. was burned and looted in protest. Buildings were ransacked, burned to the ground, and black snipers on rooftops took aim at the firefighters who came to help. Get up and get right. Get up and get right. LA on my mind. And we gon' be alright. One young Dodger fan living in Watts, a 10 year old shortstop named Ozzie Smith, was told by his parents not to leave the house. We had to stay in the house for a week or two, he later said. You could hear gunshots all the time. The riots mostly targeted white-owned businesses that were rumored to either exploit African Americans or to practice discrimination. Liquor stores and pawn shops were ransacked, but a government report later noted that no houses, schools, libraries, or churches were attacked. Maury Wills, who owned a dry cleaners a few miles away, stood guard outside to deter looters, but the riot never did reach his neighborhood. Get up and get right. LA on my mind. And we gonna be alright.
Six days of rioting in a Negro section of Los Angeles left behind scenes reminiscent of war-torn cities. More than a hundred square blocks were decimated by fire and looters, and few buildings were left intact. Firemen were harassed by snipers and brick-throwing hoodlums as they attempted to control the fires, many of which were left to burn themselves out. As the National Guard moved in to restore comparative calm, the losses by fire alone were put at $200 million. No attempt has yet been made to estimate the losses suffered at the hands of the looters who stole everything from liquor to playpens. During the riots, the Dodgers played their games as scheduled, although it was challenging for the players to get there. Willie Crawford, a young Dodger outfielder, was falsely arrested for looting. After that, he rode to the ballpark each day with Roseboro and Lou Johnson, the three of them wearing their Dodger uniforms as they drove through Watts, so as not to be mistaken for rioters, or for cops. I thought if people saw that I was a Dodger, I wouldn't get killed, Johnson said, and in fact, one writer noted that the Dodgers, being a famous symbol of integration, did seem to get a pass during the Watts riots. Most of the white Dodgers, even though they didn't have to drive through Watts, carried guns in their cars as they drove to the ballpark, just in case. At Dodger Stadium, fans in the upper deck were able to see the smoke rising from Watts 12 miles away. On the first night of the riots, John Roseborough asked for the night off and spent the game in the bullpen with a transistor radio to his ear, getting news updates and passing them along to teammates. When he got home after the game, Roseboro loaded two guns and spent the night standing watch outside the house while his family slept. As the violence raged on, the chief of the LAPD only made things worse, calling the rioters monkeys and saying, we didn't ask these people to come here. Finally, on the seventh day, the rioters rested, and 14,000 National Guardsmen were able to quell the disturbance. In the end, according to the official government report, 4,000 people were arrested, 1,032 injured, 152 shot, and 34 killed, including at least 23 killed by police. In the aftermath, the LAPD launched a public relations campaign to show they weren't as racist as everyone believed. They hired John Roseborough, who'd always had an interest in law enforcement, as a liaison to the African-American community. Roseboro urged the hiring of more black officers, even recruiting a few personally. But white cops viewed this as catering to the quote-unquote criminal population that caused the riots in the first place. Feeling harassed by his colleagues, Roseboro resigned his position in disgust after a few months. While most commentators heaped scorn on the rioters while turning a blind eye to their complaints, at least one American newspaper columnist tried to identify the root cause. Riots do not happen because a crowd seeks to restrain an officer from making an arrest, Jackie Robinson wrote in the New York Amsterdam News. Riots begin with the hopelessness which lives in the hearts of a people who from childhood expect to live in run-down houses, to be raised by one parent, to be denied proper recreation, to attend an inferior school, to experience police brutality, and to be turned down when seeking a decent job. Reason number nine, the holdout.
Walter O'Malley loved to bond with his players, loved to joke around with them, but when it came time to negotiate salaries, he disappeared. Those discussions were the job of the man he'd hired to play bad cop, General Manager Buzzy Bavese. In one sense, Bavese was like a father figure, a benevolent dictator. If you had a financial emergency, he'd help you out. If you needed money for your family vacation, he'd hand you a check. If you had an ex-girlfriend stalking you, he'd pay her off and get her to go away. What he wouldn't do was pay you the salary you were actually worth. Every year, O'Malley gave Bavese one of the lowest budgets in the National League and told him to make it work somehow. Bavese was ruthless. He'd pit teammates against one another. He'd leave fake contracts lying around on his desk so players might peek at them and think, Hey, my salary isn't so bad compared to that guy's. He used scare tactics with everyone, Maury Wills said. Every year, Bavese managed to keep the Dodgers' payroll steady at just over half a million bucks. But in the spring of 1966, with the Dodgers coming off a world championship, it wasn't going to be easy. And Joe Namath wasn't making things any easier. Namath, the matinee idol slash quarterback from the University of Alabama, had just become the highest paid athlete in the country, signing a three-year deal with the New York Jets that paid him $142,000 a year. Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale were making around half that. When they read about Namath's deal in the paper, Koufax and Drysdale figured they were worth at least that much. Whenever a player wanted a raise the club wouldn't give, their only option was to hold out, just not show up for spring training. Drysdale's wife came up with an ingenious idea. Drysdale and Koufax should hold out together. They could negotiate as a team, with each man asking for a three-year contract worth half a million dollars or $167,000 per year, which would make them the highest paid athletes in any team sport. Koufax liked the idea. I never doubted for a minute that if Don or I had been in it alone, we would have been chewed up and thoroughly digested, he later wrote. So Koufax and Drysdale formed a union of two, and they hired a Hollywood agent, the same one who represented Untouchables star Robert Stack, to negotiate on their behalf. Player agents were forbidden by the Dodgers, in fact, that term didn't even exist. It wasn't in the lexicon. If you had said a phrase like player agent, people would have looked at you uh, like you were the man from Mars. The, the, the term didn't exist in the parlance of the time. Bavese started playing dirty right away. He tried to turn the pitcher's teammates against them by announcing that total raises for all players on the Dodgers would be capped at $100,000. So whatever extra money Koufax and Drysdale got they would be taking it out of the pockets of their teammates. If this was intended to make the pitchers feel guilty, it didn't work. Two years earlier, Koufax had been enraged when Bavese not only leaked his salary demand to the press, but lied about the amount, exaggerating it in order to make Koufax seem unreasonable. Betrayed by someone he had imagined to be his friend, Koufax decided from then on to leave friendship out of it. He just wanted as much money as he could squeeze out of the Dodgers. Sandy pushed Buzzy in a way the rest of us didn't, Maury Wills said. He deserved a lot more money than he was getting, and everybody knew it. Everybody did know it, or at least everybody who could do math. The players knew O'Malley raked in upwards of $100,000 per game in ticket sales and concessions. Without even including advertising and other sources of revenue, that came out to $8.1 million a year, and games pitched by Koufax were even more lucrative. Every time he pitched, an extra five to 10,000 fans showed up, generating an extra $50,000 or so for O'Malley. Multiply that by 20 home starts a season, 
and the Dodgers were making an extra million bucks a year off Koufax alone, and that's before accounting for his residual effect on things like world championships and merchandise sales. Even their steep asking price of $167,000 was only a fraction of their actual, tangible value to the organization. Their teammates encouraged them to get everything they could. Nobody was jealous or annoyed. We recognized their greatness. We recognized that if we didn't have them, we had no chance of winning a pennant. Wes Parker. That we wouldn't have won the year before in 65, we wouldn't win in 66 without them. We all knew that. We wanted them to get as much as they possibly could so that they were happy and they would come back and pitch well for us. In addition to which, we were thinking, well, if they can raise the salary level for all of us, then we're going to benefit from that as well. So we were 100% for them. We just hoped that they would get it settled by the time the season started. If the Dodgers refused to budge, Koufax and Drysdale had just two options, cave in or sit out the season. If you don't like your salary, you have to be willing to quit the game, Koufax said. It's your only leverage. Just in case, the pair began making plans for careers after baseball. Luckily, they were in the right city for it. Koufax and Drysdale signed contracts with Paramount Pictures to play supporting roles in an upcoming police drama called Warning Shot. Publicly, Bavesi said he wouldn't lose any sleep if Koufax and Drysdale decided to retire. If they could make more money in the movies, I wish them the best of luck, he said. Of course, nobody believed a word of it. Everyone knew that without Koufax and Drysdale, the Dodgers were screwed. As March came to an end, while the team wrapped up spring training in Barrow Beach, Koufax and Drysdale were on the Paramount lot rehearsing their scenes for the film that was scheduled to begin shooting on April 11th. Bavesi, feeling desperate, upped his offer to both men by $12,000. Drysdale wanted to take the deal, and he persuaded Koufax to do the same. Bypassing the agent and negotiating directly with Bavesi, the pitchers got neither the three-year contract nor the half a million bucks they were looking for, but they did get vastly larger raises than they otherwise would have, so they looked at it as a victory. Koufax would receive $125,000, Drysdale $110. An irritated Walter O'Malley, who hated to lose at anything, sent Bavesi a sarcastic memo. Congratulations on another fine year, it read. Nice of you to give your raise to Drysdale. Bavesi, who had always been prone to wild emotional swings, seemed to take the whole thing personally. Even years later, he would write that Koufax and Drysdale, quote, took money out of the pockets of the other 23 players, which, as Ron Fairley notes, could not have been further from the truth. We were behind the players. Back then, uh, players were not playing very much money. In fact, we won the World Series in 1959. And Buzzy Bavesi told me that in 1959, the 40-man roster was $850,000. And when you start, think about that, 40 guys that split $850,000 compared to what players are receiving today, there's a big, big gap. And uh, I think what Koufax and Drysdale did uh, pretty much helped the rest of us earn just a little bit more money. The lengths Koufax and Drysdale had to go to to get a raise neatly illustrated the need for a players' union. 1966 was a year of people demanding their rights, and ballplayers saw no reason why they should be any different. In the past year alone, Martin Luther King had led civil rights activists on an epic march from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery, 
Feminists had fought and won two important court cases, one that legalized contraception and another that opened up many previously male-only jobs to women. Cesar Chavez had led migrant farm workers on a march to the state capital in Sacramento, California, to demand civil rights and labor protections. The baseball players knew their situation wasn't as dire as those other groups, but they were still being taken extreme advantage of in a system that had been rigged against them for decades. Player salaries as a percentage of team revenue had declined by 50% since the 1930s. Players decided they would fight against their own exploitation as those other groups had, especially since their earning power usually ended soon after turning 30. With little fanfare, there was a man visiting Major League clubhouses in the spring of 1966 who sought to change the ball player's lot. Marvin Miller, a small man with silver hair, a pencil mustache, and a soft-spoken New York accent, had been working in the American labor movement his whole adult life. Longer, actually. As a kid, he'd marched in picket lines with his mom, a member of the New York City Teachers Union. Miller grew up, got an economics degree, and went to work fighting on behalf of groups like the United Auto Workers. Over the past two decades, he'd won important concessions as chief negotiator for the United Steelworkers. Now, as a lifelong Dodger fan, he would try to do the same in baseball. Bavesi and O'Malley tried their best to scare players away from Miller, telling tales of the horrors that might befall players if they unionize, like high union dues. You could tell Buzzy and O'Malley wanted no part of Miller educating us, one player said. But O'Malley, surprisingly, was not as dead set against the union as one might expect. In fact, his grandfather had once been a union organizer for postal workers back in New York. A sophisticated union would be good for the players, he admitted. It wasn't going to be easy. Since 1879, Major League contracts had featured a clause known as the Reserve Clause, which would have been illegal in any other business, but was legal in baseball due to a series of bizarre Supreme Court decisions decades earlier. The Reserve Clause gave the team that first signed a player the rights to that player for life. They could renew the player's contract against his will for as many years as they wanted at whatever salary the team dictated. Essentially, the reserve clause turned baseball players into, as the center fielder Kurt Flood put it, well-paid slaves. And really, many of them weren't all that well-paid. Their incomes were modest enough that most found it necessary to work off-season jobs. John Roseboro, for instance, was a clothing salesman at a downtown store. Maury Wills, at his dry cleaners, probably cleaned some of the clothes people bought from Roseboro. 
Players had been making attempts to unionize since the 1800s, when John Montgomery Ward, a shortstop pitcher and lawyer, helped convince players to leave the National League and form their own league, the Players League. Lacking sufficient financial backing, it folded after a year. Other cursory attempts to form a union were made over the next seven decades, but all were crushed under the boot heels of the owners. Now, though, the players had something they'd never had before, a professional organizer who knew what he was doing. Within two years of his hiring in 1966, Marvin Miller forced the owners to raise the minimum salary from $6,000 to $10,000 and to agree to independent arbitration of player grievances. In 1975, one of those arbitrators abolished the reserve clause, ushering the sport into the era of free agency. The average major league salary, $19,000 when Miller started the union, rose to $241,000 by the time he retired 16 years later. But perhaps the best indicator of Miller's success is the fact that even today, the team owners who run the Hall of Fame's board of directors, and by extension its Veterans Committee, continue to blackball Miller from enshrinement in Cooperstown. At least a small part of Marvin Miller's success can be attributed to Koufax and Drysdale's holdout, which marked the first time in history that baseball players had ever successfully bargained collectively with management. As one sports writer put it, Players everywhere will always remember Sandy and Don for opening the door to the Mint. What the Dodgers unwittingly did was lit the match that helped to create the Players Union. Players who were already itching to establish a Players Union could look at all the hell that Koufax and Drysdale were going through in trying to get what they deserve and say, my gosh, if Koufax and Drysdale have to work this hard to get paid fairly, what about the rest of us? We really do need a players' union. So unwittingly, in fighting Koufax and Drysdale uh, for, a long, for a lengthy period of time, Bavese and O'Malley helped to light that match that, that gave rise to the players' union. And in the end, of course, Koufax and Drysdale won out in that salary battle with the Dodgers, got what they deserved, and it remains to this day uh, one of the most courageous and effective player holdouts ever. For the Dodgers, though, that 1966 season turned out to be the end of the line. Thanks to another extraordinary season from Koufax, they repeated as National League champions, but they were crushed by Baltimore in the World Series. After the season, Sandy Koufax, tired of the chili pepper ointment and the horse tranquilizers and the painful cortisone shots, retired at the shockingly youthful age of 30. Maury Wills, who had pissed off O'Malley by departing early from a team trip to Japan, was traded to the Pittsburgh Pirates as punishment for pennies on the dollar. John Roseborough, after the best year of his career, was shipped to Minnesota in a blockbuster trade. Don Drysdale, his arm shot, like Koufax's, retired in 1969. By then, a new crop of talented Dodgers was in the minor leagues, waiting to create a powerhouse team in the 1970s. But the Dodgers of the 60s were history. The glamour of Hollywood's golden age, the excitement of Wills, the magic of Koufax, all of it was gone for good, resigned, as all things eventually are, to the dustbin of history. But the players would never forget that special decade when they'd been stars on the most important team in baseball. A great thrill. Uh, it was something I had dreamed of. I only wanted to play for the Dodgers. 
because I had such a fondness for them. And when they lost the um, the playoffs to the Giants in 1962, I actually wept as a 22-year-old man. I mean, that's how much I cared about them. And I wanted to uh, avenge, avenge the, the Giants, uh, get our revenge against them after that 62 series, which we did actually in, in 65 by coming from five games back to beat them. So, yeah, that that was my dream. I only wanted to play for the Dodgers. I never wanted to play for any other team. It meant a lot to me to be able to do that. Well, I put my, put my hopes and dreams Through the washing machine They say everything will be okay This episode of Fade Away was written, produced, and edited by Eric Enders. Special thanks to our interview guests today, Ron Fairley, John Kennedy, Wes Parker, and Michael Leahy, whose book is called The Last Innocence, The Collision of the Turbulent 60s and the Los Angeles Dodgers. We'll put up a link to it on our website. Thanks also to all the other authors whose published work was helpful in researching today's show, especially Michael D'Antonio, Bill Libby, and David Plout. You can visit our website at fadeawaypodcast.com, where you'll find the episode box score, which contains the full list of sources and music credits for today's show, as well as music and videos related to today's episode, and some terrific photos of Sandy Koufax, Maury Wills, and the rest of the gang. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at fadeawaypod. And of course, it helps us a bunch if you rate and review the podcast on iTunes. I know there was a long gap between the last episode and this one, so thanks for your patience, and I promise the next show will arrive sooner and be much shorter. Thanks for listening, and remember, the K stands out even more than the O-U-F-A-X. Remember, Fade Away was sponsored today by Audible. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash fadeaway. That's audibletrial.com slash fadeaway. And that's the Miller Hill Hallelujah Twist! <laughs>